The U.S. uses solitary confinement like no other country in the world and nowhere more than the Supermax prison in Colorado. Solitary damages prisoners' minds. The U.N. has called it torture. So what happens when prisoners leave Supermax? From solitary to the street, that's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. To support the show and unlock extra content and more exclusive benefits, become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice geek and your personal guide to our messy criminal justice system. And still lucky as lucky can be to have that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Before we get into the episode, we want you to become a member and supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. Go to our Patreon link at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice and get access to extra content like our special series on the criminal justice platforms of the 2020 candidates for president and much more. The first hundred people to join get a signed copy of my book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. Let's talk about solitary confinement. You might think of solitary confinement as prison inside prison. It's isolation within prison walls. While most inmates mix to some degree with others in the general population, there are some who are segregated, literally separated out from the full population into single-person cells with very little human contact. They may be in those cells 22 or 23 hours a day with little time out for recreation. If they see anyone, it might be guards or staff bringing food to their cells or something like that since they don't eat with the rest of the people in the prison. This isolation is the main thing about solitary confinement. These people are confined in an almost completely solitary existence. Fact, solitary is very harsh. It causes harm, deep psychological harm. Think about it. Humans are social creatures. Cutting that off almost completely, no other faces, no other voices, barely any interaction, is deeply damaging to the human mind, the human psyche. People in solitary suffer from uncontrolled rages and anger, PTSD, distortions of time and perception, insomnia, paranoia, uh, their risk of suicide increases, you name it. And when we're talking about prisoners with mental illnesses in solitary, well, all we're doing is locking these people up with their personal demons and hallucinations and psychoses for their only company. In 2011, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture warned that solitary confinement, and I'll quote here, can amount to torture or cruel, inhuman, or degrading punishment, close quote, in a variety of short and long-term usages. Here's a little audio that gives a sense of what this is like. Uh, it's from Slate in a report about solitary by the journalist Leon Nafok. The voice you're about to hear is the voice of a man who spent years in solitary, as some people do, and he's describing a very typical experience. Here it is. Two major things happen in solitary. One, sensory deprivation, right? Where you have no sound, 
where you have sight, where you have limited abilities to run and articulate your brain. There's also another thing, which is human validation, which plays a big part. Imagine being in your cell and the only person who can give you toilet tissue, bread, water, food, medical services, everything that you need down to a shower. Imagine those services and those things done by somebody who's trained to ignore you. Now, let's take another step. In the federal prison system. There have always been prisons where the worst, the most notorious or most violent prisoners were kept. Back in the day, it was Alcatraz, the rock out in San Francisco Bay. When Alcatraz closed, it was the federal maximum security prison in Marion, Illinois. And when that prison wasn't thought to be enough to contain and safely house these people, the feds built a new one, the Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado. Its official name is United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility in Florence, but it's mostly just called ADX, or sometimes the Alcatraz of the Rockies, out in the mountains, two hours from Denver and a long way from anywhere else. ADX is unique among American prisons. Every cell is a solitary cell. Solitary confinement isn't some special condition or punishment. It's the rule, the condition in which every prisoner, all 375 or so of them, it's, it's the way they all live almost all of the hours of the day. There are some truly bad people there. El Chapo, the Mexican drug kingpin, he just checked in. Ramzi Youssef, who bombed the World Trade Center in the 1990s. The Boston Marathon bomber is there, too. But more of the people there, we've just never heard of. These are people uh, of real violent nature who have not been contained in other prisons and who will never get out. And then there are behavioral incorrigibles and mentally ill people, too. Many of them. And this could be surprising to you. Some of them are going to get out, even from the supermax. Yes, they're going to get out someday. And what happens when they do, how does the institution prepare them to get out after years of this damaging sort of isolation? Does it prepare them at all? And what happens when they're released at long last? Our guest today has taken a very deep dive into what happens to prisoners at ADX and what happens when a sentence at ADX ends and the person is free. Keegan Hamilton is senior reporter at Vice News, covering drug policy, criminal justice, and immigration. As part of the Vice operation, he did a segment on synthetic opioids for Vice News Tonight on HBO, which was nominated for an Emmy. He's also written for BuzzFeed News, TheAtlantic.com, and The Guardian, among many others. He was also co-host of the Chapo podcast. I bet some of you heard that. His piece on ADX solidary confinement, and release from custody was called From the Alcatraz of the Rockies to the Streets, and it was published by Vice News at the end of August 2019. Keegan Hamilton, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with ADX. This prison built in Florence, Colorado, it's uh, what's called a supermax. Uh, it puts, uh, that puts it a notch above maximum security. Tell us First, just what is ADX like physically on the inside for people who are housed there? What's it like? So personally, I've never been inside of ADX. Uh, as far as I can tell, the Bureau of Prisons hasn't allowed a reporter inside that facility 
uh, since before 9-11. However, I did talk to 11 former inmates uh, for my story uh, and a number of people who worked in the facility in some capacity, including guards uh, and attorneys who had clients there. So both guards uh, and, think, and prisoners and others who've been inside. Exactly. Uh, and I think everybody describes it as a pretty uh, foreboding place. Uh, for one thing, as you said in your intro, it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. It's about two hour drive south of Denver. And to get there, uh, you just drive across uh, like a, a high desert plain. You see the Rocky Mountains. And everybody talks about how when you go inside ADX, it, it feels like going underground. Uh, and you, you basically, inmates who go in never see the mountains again until they're released. Uh, the prison is designed to disorient inmates in a lot of ways. So it's got winding corridors that are set off at odd angles. Uh, the rec yard has very high walls, so the only inmates can only see the sky. Uh, the cells themselves only have a narrow window that faces up, so inmates can only see the sky uh, to sort of keep them from knowing which direction they're, they're facing so that you know, they can't easily escape. If, if they do get out, they don't know where they are. So all of these things combined... Uh, make it a really harsh existence. And as you said, every single person in this prison, uh, there's currently about 375 of them with capacity for uh, a maximum of around 500, is in uh, solitary confinement. Uh, that's single cell. They, they have a, a, most people have a 7 by 12 foot cell to themselves, and that's where they spend almost all of their day. And, and this isn't because they're punished or something. This is how it is for everybody, the single person in the single cell. That's right. The, it, there's two types of solitary confinement. One is uh, administrative segregation and one is punitive segregation. That punitive segregation is what most people are probably familiar with, where it's, it's the whole. Every prison kind of has this facility where if you can't obey the rules of the prison, you get punished by going, getting sent to the whole. Uh, administrative segregation, which is what ADX is, is prison authorities saying this person needs to be separate, not for punishment, but for other reasons, maybe they're uh, a high-profile inmate uh, and they're worried that they'll be attacked if they're in the, the prison population. Right. That's maybe what happened somebody... to Whitey Bulger when he was transferred to another prison. Exactly right. Or maybe they're, they're somebody who has been too violent uh, in other prison situations. They're, every time they've been put in the general population of even a high-security prison, they attack another inmate or they attack a guard. And those are a lot of the people who get sent to the ADX. So they're in ADX, and they're all in separate single cells. Uh, you know, we hear these kinds of solitary confinement situations as described as only for the worst of the worst. And you've, you have described one category like that, at least. You've said, you know, prisoners who can't, almost can't stop being violent no matter where they are, even in another high-security prison. Is it the worst of the worst we're talking about at ADX? Well, certainly it's, it's the worst of the worst in the sense that uh, many of the, the high-profile terrorism suspects get sent there. So you mentioned Ramzi Youssef, the Boston Marathon bomber, uh, one of the, the only 9-11 plotter who was convicted in uh, U.S. civilian court uh, is at ADX, Zakaris Moussaoui. Uh, but it, the, the stats that are available uh, suggest that I think 90% of the people who are in ADX are there because they had disciplinary problems at other prisons. There, that, that covers a lot. Disciplinary problems are pretty vague. But my understanding is, is if you attack a guard, if you attack staff, uh, like a nurse or a chaplain or something like that, uh, 
the prison system is probably going to send you to ADX, and that's a good chunk of the people who are there. So I talked some in the introduction, as you heard, about how being in a solitary situation affects the human psyche and really damages the person and the personality, Um, which makes me ask, how many people at ADX are thought to have mental illnesses? That's a great question, and one that the Bureau of Prisons is not especially transparent about. And you can also divide this into two eras. And prior to around 2012, 2013, uh, the number was pretty high. There was a a federal uh, class action lawsuit against the Bureau of Prisons uh, alleging that there were many uh, mentally ill prisoners there. I heard one lawyer who worked on that lawsuit said something like, 40%, according to his estimate, and independent evaluations, uh, psychological evaluations of these inmates, suggested they had mental illness. After the lawsuit was filed uh, and litigated, the Bureau of Prisons was sort of coerced into changing some of its policies, transferring out some of the people with the most severe mental illnesses, and trying to exclude uh, mentally ill inmates from being placed there. However, even after this lawsuit, which was uh, settled in 2016, the Bureau of Prisons reserve the right to put mentally ill prisoners in ADX if they pose an extraordinary security threat. And that is up entirely to the discretion of Bureau of Prisons. That could be somebody who's, like we said earlier, just repeatedly attacking guards. Uh, if, you, if they have a severe mental illness, they might say the only way that we can safely house this person and safely for, for the, our own staff is at ADX. We don't know exactly how many people today have mental illness at ADX. The Bureau of Prisons says it's it's less, and they do everything in their power to keep those people out. But uh, clearly, you know, in some of the people that I encountered uh, in the course of my reporting, there are people still with severe mental illnesses who are there today. So let's take a step back from ADX. I mean, how common is solitary generally, um, either in the federal system or the state system or all together? Uh, is ADX uh, an example of the most extreme things, or is it kind of in step with some of what we see in other prison settings? So ADX in the federal system is is pretty unique. It's, it's the only prison where all the inmates are in solitary confinement or single-celled. That's how the Bureau of Prisons labels it. They don't use the term solitary confinement. Now, that's that accounts for a pretty small number. Like we said, it's about uh, today 375 inmates. Across the entire Bureau of Prisons, there's around 150,000 inmates in federal custody, and only about uh, just under 11,000 of those, something like 10,800 inmates, are in some type of uh, restricted housing, which is the Bureau of Prisons' preferred euphemism for solitary confinement. Nationally, it's it's a lot more because you're talking about state prisons, you're talking about uh, large jails, you know, every sort of local lockup uh, typically has some segregated housing inside the prison. The best estimate uh, that we have currently is something like 61,000 inmates uh, nationwide are in some form of, of segregated housing or restricted housing. Well, if that's 61,000 nationally... If they're in there for 30 days or 90 days on some kind of a punitive thing, I guess that would be one thing, and that has its own problems. But how many are in there and for very long periods? That, that's another great question. And, and unfortunately, there's, there's just not a lot of transparency with this around uh, prisons and jails around the country. That 61,000 uh, statistic that I cited to you comes from uh, the 
Association of State Correctional Administrators uh, and researchers at Yale University who sent out surveys to all of these uh, state prison systems in the, some of the largest jails in the country. They sort of self-reported their numbers back to that. And some of these places have put in place measures to specifically prohibit long-term solitary confinement um, because they know that it's damaging and that it can cause more problems than it, than it prevents. But in terms of how many people are in solitary for more than a month, I, don't, I haven't seen a good number on that. And I don't know that there is, uh, it's possible without the, the U.S. government compelling these, these jails and prisons to, to come forward with these numbers that we'll ever get that. Right. And and yet we see reports of people eventually being released after 10, 20, even 25 years in solitary, sort of unimaginable. Let's let's return now, if we could, to uh, to focus on ADX and uh, the mentally ill people who are in there, the others who are in there. We hear this figure a lot that 95 percent of all the people we put into prison, 95 percent are going to be released. So the, the, the idea is we should do something about reentry. We should rehabilitate them, something like that. I know that thinking about ADX with this, you know, worst of the worst group, if that's what it is, 95 percent are not coming home. But we, do we know what percentage of these inmates will someday be released? So we don't have an exact count, but the best number comes from uh, the Bureau of Prisons' own data, which was provided to independent auditors in 2014. And that said something like 40% of the inmates at ADX are will be released eventually or could be released eventually. That is, 40% are not on a life sentence. What? 40%? Now, that is higher than I would have guessed. However, the catch there is that that doesn't include de facto life sentences where somebody is is getting up there in age and has a long sentence left to serve. So they might not have a life term, but they're probably going to die in prison because oh, I they won't be able to serve out their serve out their sentence. Mm-hmm. More recently, uh, another group of independent inspectors were allowed to visit ADX, and they found that between 2017 and 2020, they were projected to have 50 inmates from ADX released uh, from federal custody back to the community. Uh, that's a pretty sizable chunk, a pretty pretty big percentage when you're only talking about a prison that has around 375 or, or 400 inmates in any given time. Yeah, that's I and I get I even though it's smaller than than the 40 percent, it's still sizable when you think, wow, these people are really the worst of the worst. So if these 50 people over those three years are going to be released. We have to start thinking about what gets done what, before they get released because they're coming out of a solitary confinement situation. And that's where I think your reporting and your article got really interesting and, if I may say, scary. Yeah, there are certainly some scary cases. Uh, one in particular is highlighted in the story where an inmate with some pretty severe mental health issues, uh, mental illness, uh, was released to the community with virtually no preparation, no, no, uh, you know, classes about how to interact in society, how to get a job. Uh, and within, I think, three days uh, of arriving at a halfway house in uh, Newport News, Virginia, he attacked uh, a woman uh, who was at a break from a hospital, uh, physically and sexually assaulted her. Now, there 
are some classes that ADX is trying to offer. This I mentioned that there was a lawsuit against the Bureau of Prisons about mental health and uh, mental mentally ill treatment. Excuse me. I mentioned earlier that there was a lawsuit against ADX uh, for the way that they were treating and warehousing mentally ill inmates. Prior to that lawsuit being filed, a- and when was that? Oh, yeah, prior to that lawsuit being filed in around 2012, 2013, uh, my reporting suggested that. There was virtually no no you know, programming, no classes, nothing available to these people, and they were going, in some cases, directly from the prison, put on a bus, and told to show up at the halfway house and check in with their probation officer. Nothing. As a result of that, as a result of that lawsuit, there there have been some you know incremental changes from the Bureau of Prisons uh, at ADX. They have uh, a pre-release unit that they call it, where People who have six months or less on their sentence can go and work with a social worker to try to get some of the bare essentials in terms of like a, a state ID, a social security card, things like that, um, help with job training. The Bureau of Prisons and the ADX administration wouldn't talk to me about that, so it's hard to know what exactly they're offering. Uh, the inmates uh, who have spoken about it have had mixed reviews. Uh, one of them who spoke to independent inspectors said that they got coloring books and sort of w- nothing that was going to make a real difference once they got in the outside world. And the fellow I mentioned who was out three days before attacking a woman uh, refused to participate in the program because he felt like uh, he was going to get attacked because in that program, inmates are not in solitary all the time. They're allowed to interact with each other. And he said for his own personal safety, he didn't want to take part in those classes. And he wasn't so made to do that, was he? He didn't have to do that. And exactly. You can't compel them to, to participate in these kinds of things. So as a result of that, he had nothing. Uh, so on one hand, the Bureau of Prisons seems to be trying harder to prepare these people as best they can. On the other hand, there are still instances where guys are getting out with little or no time to decompress and no you know, training preparation that, that they might need to, to return to the outside world, which is, you know, they've, they've been out of uh, completely for 10 years or more. So a real lack of preparation is what we're talking about. Let's take a quick break here. You're with Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Keegan Hamilton, senior reporter for Vice News. We're talking about his article, From the Alcatraz of the Rockies to the Streets. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more. Hi, my name is Nancy, and I'm calling from Connecticut. This is Trisha calling from Baltimore. Eric from Kingston, New York. Calling from D.C. From Orange, Virginia. Sunny Dayton, Ohio. From Long Island. St. Paul, Minnesota. Los Angeles, California. Pahului, Hawaii. Christchurch, New Zealand. Sacramento. Philadelphia. Iowa City, Iowa. I was calling to ask you a question. question for you. I had a question about Miranda. I have a question about something I heard on the news. I've been wondering. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. I was wondering, wondering, and I was just... Curious. I am curious. The question I have for you is... What I want to know I want to know... I'd love to hear more about... I would like for you to please explain... Hoping you can help me uh, understand... What are the laws about that? But I'd ask the expert. Got a question? Better call Dave. Call 412-407-3389. And ask Dave. That's 412-407-3389. Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice... And our guest is Keegan Hamilton. He is senior reporter for Vice News. And we're discussing his piece called 
from the Alcatraz of the Rockies to the streets, in which he did a deep dive into the ADX Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, and came up with surprising findings about how people end their stays, which are virtually totally in solitary confinement and sometimes end up right back out on the street. Now, before the break, Keegan, we were talking about some of the programming that has been put in place by the ADX prison since the 2012-13 lawsuit. Um, You've talked to a number of the inmates who served in the prison in that time and who have been released. What did they say about the effectiveness of the programming? Unfortunately, everyone that I spoke to had nothing good to say about the effectiveness of the programming. Some of those people predated the implementation of the programming, so they got the old model, which was virtually nothing. Uh, Some of them were, were talking about how they would literally be the doors of the prison would open, a guard would put them in a prison vehicle and drive them to the nearest uh, Greyhound bus stop in Pueblo, Colorado, put them on a bus and say, good luck, show up at your halfway house. More recently, they've tried to transfer people out of ADX and give them at least some sort of buffer time between uh, being in ADX and solitary confinement for 22, 23 hours a day and being out in a more standard prison setting. In some cases, that, that decompression time can be very short. Uh, like we're talking a matter of weeks, uh, maybe two months at most. And when you and say that, then, when you say a decompression setting, you mean another prison, I take it. Exactly. They, they'll be transferred from ADX, usually to another high security federal prison, somewhere closer to where they will eventually be released. So if you're going to go, uh, in the case of one guy, his hometown was in Ohio, so the prison system sent him to uh, a federal prison in Kentucky. And that's where he served out the last year or so of his sentence. He had a cellmate during that time. He said that it, it went okay, but in terms of preparation for getting out and being around other people, uh, looking for a job, finding housing, he got none of those things. He ended up going to a halfway house didn't last at the halfway house because it was the first time he'd been, he's sleeping in a dorm setting uh, after years uh, in a prison cell in solitary uh, and ended up at a homeless shelter uh, within a matter of weeks of him getting home. Uh, so that's, that's sort of a typical story. He wasn't the only in, former ADX inmate who I encountered who uh, within a matter of weeks or months of getting out was in a homeless shelter because they couldn't find stable housing or work. And that actually represents somewhat of a success, I have to say, given your other reporting, because at least that man didn't commit new crimes. Yeah, I mean, this this gets into the, the bigger problem of recidivism uh, in the federal inmate population. The recidivism rate is, is pretty high uh, across the population. So it's not necessarily unusual for inmates who have been released to reoffend with some some type of crime not necessarily a violent offense, but something that that sends them back. The ADX population is unique, uh, not just because they're they're often have committed some horrific crime that got them sent to ADX in the first place, but also because they have served a long sentence, so they're getting up there in age a little bit. So you're talking about guys who are usually going to be in their late 30s at the youngest, sometimes 40, 50 years old. And when you get up there in age, uh, you know, the studies are, are pretty clear that the recidivism rate goes down. Yes, it does. So the fact that 
so the fact that these guys, uh, a handful of them who identified, were released and were in that, that demographic where the recidivism rate is lower and still reoffended is, is troubling, to say the least. Yeah. You know, we have here in Pittsburgh, where I'm based, Carnegie Mellon University has had a public policy school of some note for a long time. And one of the real stars who is now retired was a gentleman uh, I'm privileged to know named Al Blumstein, uh, the criminologist. And he's the one who identified this very thing that people age out of crime. I mean, they, they, they don't, not every person does, but it's basically a young man's game. And by the time a person is in their early 30s, mid 30s, uh, there just isn't the same drive to do those things in most people. So uh, you should see a drop in recidivism when the population gets older. Yeah, and that, that fellow I mentioned who was released to home Ohio and ended up in a homeless shelter, you know, he, he's getting up there in age. I think he was in his, his mid-40s, I believe. And you talking to him, he has a tremendous history of violence, uh, both uh, especially inside the prison system. But once he was out, you know, he, he had reconnected with his son, who was in his early 20s. Uh, he had family who was helping him out. And he had been in prison for almost all of his adult life and really didn't want to go back. Uh, and I think that that, you know, as, as damaged as some of these people can be from being in solitary confinement for so long, they still get out and they've, they've changed their time in the prison system has changed them. And they, they desperately want to avoid going back. Of course, that doesn't always mean that they're going to be able to avoid uh, putting themselves in a situation or making a decision that, that leads to them going back. But for the most part, nobody wants to go back. Even the guy who I mentioned who lasted three days before he attacked someone, uh, talking to him after the fact, he was, I think ashamed. And, and he talked about how it was just so surreal for him, he never thought that he would only last three days before going back inside. He he wanted his freedom. He enjoyed his freedom in that that brief period where he had it. But it, it was just a, a circumstances, and and I think his mental illness uh, contributed to him, you know, reoffending and committing a crime. Sure, unfortunately, no. going to put him back in prison mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah, no, you're talking about the story of Jabbar Currents, and you know, I I think that that one really strikes a chord. Um, and, you know, you right now you, you, you explain in the piece how the Bureau of Prisons has a 36-month step-down program. There are a whole bunch of transfers between prisons involved, and then there's a halfway house and so forth. But still, according to the people involved, the inmates, uh, even those uh, released through this sort of process, uh, it's not nearly enough. And so... I'm left thinking about that lady who Jabbar Currents attacked, and she's quoted in your story, the lady standing outside the hospital. I think she was a nurse on a smoke break. And, you know, how does a person like that feel knowing that this guy who attacked her was just so recently in solitary confinement and came out without hardly a lick of preparation? How does a, how does a regular civilian react to this? I mean, she, she wasn't entirely aware of the circumstances uh, until I got, got a hold of her on the phone and explained sort of, all right, here's, here's what happened with, with Jabbar Occurrence. And her reaction, and I think one that most people who read this story and, and learn about Jabbar Occurrence's circumstances we walk away with is, how does the prison system think it's okay to take someone who's been deemed too dangerous to even be around other inmates and put them on the streets uh, with 
with little to no oversight. I mean, that that just seems wrong. That if somebody is so dangerous, that that they but can they have be to be an ADX, in. yeah. And and that and I don't want to suggest that the prison system should be holding people beyond the end of their sentence. These people have paid their debt to society. They've served a term that's been mandated by a court. And it's, the onus is on the Bureau of Prisons, in my opinion, to figure out you know, from day one, how, if we know that this person is going to get out, how do we help them? How do we prevent this from happening from the start? And that's the stated mission of the Bureau of Prisons. But in practice, it just seems like that's not, not happening, or at least not happening in a way that's actually effective. Yeah, there's a quote in your piece from a prison official in the state of Colorado, and I'll just paraphrase here. I can't get it exactly, but he says, you know, you take people, you you hold them in solitary confinement for years on end, and then you basically just put them out on the street. It's like rolling a stick of lit dynamite down a city street. I mean, is he being too extreme? I think, in a way, it's, it's a little bit uh, hyperbolic, to put it that way. But he makes a point. I mean, if if you if you knew that your neighbor uh, who's just moving in had just gotten out of 10 plus years in solitary confinement in a prison that's for the so-called worst of the worst, I think any legitimate uh, normal person would be worried about that. Um, he he also is that that prison official from Colorado, the state of Colorado is speaking from experience uh, because his predecessor as the, the director of the Colorado Department of Corrections was murdered by an inmate yes. who was released directly from solitary confinement. Yes. I mean, uh, that, and that is a tragic, that, incredible story. And it kind of goes along with some of the rethinking that we've seen on solitary confinement. Re- some of it really beginning with that terrible story. Tell us the story of that inmate. I think his name was Evan Abel how he was released, what happened, and how Colorado has uh, rethought things. Go ahead. So he, he, Evan, Evan Ebel was a state prisoner in Colorado, young guy, uh, served a, a pretty lengthy prison sentence. I don't remember the exact number of years, but I think it was around somewhere in the degree of 10 years, maybe give or take a few. Uh, and he was released directly from solitary confinement to the streets. He then went on to uh, attack and murder a Domino's pizza delivery driver, take the guy's uniform, and then go to the knock on the front door of the director of the, then at the time, the director of the Colorado Department of Corrections. And when that fellow, his name was Tom Clements, opened his door, uh, Evil opened fire, uh, killed him, and went on the run, and was later killed in a, a shootout with police in Texas. That incident, uh, you know, obviously caused shock, uproar in Colorado. And Tom Clements, the the man who was murdered, had been trying to reform the prison system and end uh, the practice of direct releases, reduce the time that people people were spending in solitary confinement. So the man who followed him in the job took it a step further, uh, immediately banned direct releases. Colorado doesn't allow that anymore. And made Colorado really the most progressive state in the country when it comes to solitary confinement. Uh, how they're so? The first and only. Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. How how is it the most progressive state now? What changes did they make? So Colorado is is the first, and as far as I know, the only state to comply with the United Nations uh, Nelson Mandela rules, which uh, basically say that 
no one should be held for more than 15 days in solitary confinement, uh, any longer than that, and the UN considers it torture. So Colorado has complied with this and basically says that nobody will go in solitary for longer than 14 days, and they're only sent there for the most serious violations of rules. Colorado also said that they're not going to get around this policy by putting in someone in for 14 days, transferring them out for a day, and then sending them right back in. Uh-huh. So Colorado has adopted uh, a lot of, of changes in terms of trying to figure out ways to have a safety valve for inmates who are acting out, um, letting them vent, um, finding having a higher priority on getting mental health treatment in prison. And And it's something that ADX has also tried to do to a certain extent that even people who can't be around other inmates, getting them out and having them associate while in restraint. Um, So that could mean that someone is shackled at the wrists and ankles uh, and they're chained to a table while they get some sort of group therapy session. Right. Uh, ADX, ADX has something similar where they have, they call them therapy enclosures but they're basically uh, phone booth-sized cages that are bolted to the floor of a basketball gym where five guys who couldn't be around each other uh, without restraints are able to sort of be in the same room at the same time talking to a therapist or getting some sort of class or program. All right. So with these changes in Colorado, do we have any data or any results that tell us, you know, has has it helped? So Colorado, uh, from everything I've seen, has had uh, pretty positive results from this. They, for one thing, used to have a state supermax prison where Colorado's worst of the worst were housed. That prison is now empty. Uh, They still have a high-security prison, which has uh, some solitary cells inside of it, but there is no no longer a supermax in Colorado. Uh, They have uh, two two prisons that are high-security mental health prisons, where a lot of those inmates who were acting out uh, in ways that led them to be put in the state supermax are now in uh, a more treatment-focused setting. And the former prison director who I talked to basically said that, that it's made things better for everyone, uh, for the inmates who are no longer you know, spending long periods of time in solitary, and for the staff who are, have seen assaults go down and just find it easier, a better working environment uh, in the, the state prisons system. That's Keegan Hamilton. He is a senior reporter for Vice News. His piece, From the Alcatraz of the Rockies to the Streets, is published in Vice News, and we'll put a link to it up on our website. Thanks for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. Thanks again for having me. Stay with us for Lawyers Behaving Badly. Eyewitness testimony, confessions, fingerprints, and forensics, all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But research shows these methods are far less reliable than you might think. David Harris's 2012 book, Failed Evidence, explores the myths and misconceptions around high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To celebrate our Patreon launch, we're giving away 100 signed copies of Failed Evidence to our first 100 members at the $5 level. Claim yours now and get access to more content on the members feed at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving 
Badly, this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, which comes to us from the Texas Lawyer and the ever-trusty ABA Journal News Online, concerns lawyer Ronnie Christ of Texas. It seems that Lawyer Christ, or should I say retired Lawyer Christ, is being sued by a former client in a dispute over his fees. Nothing terribly unusual about that. Lawyers and clients do have fee disputes from time to time. The former client is, of course, represented by another attorney. But something clearly got under Lawyer Christ's skin on August 21st, 2019, the day of a deposition at the office of the other attorney. Lawyer Christ, it seems, told the client's attorney that he had better be respectful to him in the case, and Christ thought that, in fact, the attorney for the other side had not been sufficiently respectful. According to the facts that emerged, on the day of the deposition, Lawyer Christ warned the other lawyer that he better not be disrespectful again, or he would, quote, slap the shit out of him, close quote, or kick his ass or something else similarly appropriate to a junior high playground. The other lawyer said something like, I'd like to see you try. And that was when lawyer Christ up and slapped the other lawyer right in the face. Lawyer Christ is represented in the fee dispute case by another lawyer, Christ, Ronnie's own son, Scott Christ. Scott Christ confirmed exactly what happened, saying that his client and father, quote, slapped the shit out of the other lawyer and, quote, deservedly so. Great defense there, sonny boy. And, of course, the whole thing was caught by a security camera. We'll try to put a link to it up on our website so you can see it too. Watch the retired lawyer in the loud shirt point his finger at the other lawyer and then just go ahead and slap him one. The other lawyer canceled the deposition. And for his trouble, and with that great defense from his lawyer's son, Ronnie Christ can round out his legal career by fighting off a charge of criminal assault. Well, good for him. Hey, he's retired and retired folks need hobbies. How about slapping the shit out of people and going to court over it? Maybe stretching it out to slapping the bailiff or the jail guards. The possibilities for inappropriate and even criminal behavior seem endless. That's Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that's it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. You can always go to our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news, features, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. We hope you like those. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. The national initiative to build community trust and justice began just a year after Ferguson. The initiative aimed to improve criminal justice outcomes and police community relations in six cities. Now the results are in. Did it work? And what can we learn as we look for ways to improve the system? 
That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs>